Well, it's been about three weeks since I started and give a little introduction to the book of Philippians. And I'm going to go back to that. For those of you that weren't here, or for those of you that have memory issues like I do, I'm going to just give a real brief review on the book of Philippians. Um, Philippians is always one of my favorite books. My son's life verse comes out of there. There's a couple verses in Philippians 3 and 4 that I've always hung on to for years and years. So it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, And as I've been studying it more and more right now, it's like I'm beginning to understand maybe more from the perspective that Paul wrote it. How much he loved and cared for for the church in Philippi. If you remember, uh, he planted that church on his second missionary journey. This is a church that supported him. They, they actually sent money. They took offerings. They gave to support his ministry all right away. And they gave two and three times. And as he's, as he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, to the Philippian church, he's in prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter. And it's, you know, when, when the apostles write letters, when Paul writes a lot of letters to a lot of churches, uh, usually... I don't want to say they're ever really harsh, but he's usually doing a lot of correcting, a certain amount of rebuking, as well as encouraging. I guess that's what apostles do. But in this letter, it's, it's filled with instruction and teaching that's very relevant for us, even as a church today. Uh, what I'm going to share today, I, I'm thinking, God, that, that's, that's so important in today's church, even as it was back then. But he's writing it more as a friend writing a letter to another friend. And his message, even though he's in prison, even though in his ministry in the, over the years he's been beaten with rods, he's been stoned, he's been thrown in jail more than once, he's been ran out of town a numbers of times, he's, all of these things, and now he's in Rome in a jail, chained 24-7 to one of the Praetorian guard of Caesar, and he's writing this letter and it's all about joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing, showing us that as a, as a model, a demonstration for us, no matter what our circumstances, God is God and He is in control. Things can look out of control, it's never out of control in God's eyes. And as Ryan said, God even takes those things that, that look bad or that the enemy actually intends for evil, and God says He will turn it around for good for those who believe. And, and one of the things that I mentioned a few weeks ago was, you know, <clears throat> Paul had been told and promised and had a desire to go to Rome to share the gospel. Who'd have thought how he was going to end up sharing the gospel? God's plans are so different and his thoughts are so different from ours sometimes that we lose track of what's actually taking place. So Paul had 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 this heart to go to Rome to share the gospel. So here he is. He's in Rome, all right, but he's in jail. He's in prison. It's actually in a home, but he's a prisoner. Chained to one of the elite Praetorian Guard, one of the elite of Rome's army. And they would have shifts every few hours, and a new one would come. And, and God, can you imagine if you have a real evangelistic heart and somebody's chained to you six, eight hours at a time? That poor person's going to listen. They're going to hear. They're going to hear what you're writing as you read what you've written. Uh, And he had them as captive audiences. And it tells us in in chapter 1 that the the message and his imprisonment, had the word of it had spread that he was imprisoned for Christ throughout Rome. 
And it says the word was going forth everywhere and, and it was going forth. It even says it was going forth even more boldly because of his ability to proclaim the gospel even while in prison. And in, I, I didn't share this scripture last three weeks ago, but at the very end of the, the book, I think it's the second to the last verse, it says this, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How cool is that? Caesar's household, his servants, are getting saved. God had an evangelism program that we could never have designed. Paul could have never designed it. It was to be a prisoner in Rome, to have the elite officers being the ones that are chained to you, hearing the gospel, accepting Christ. God's way, God's thoughts, different than ours. First of all, to me, it's just a huge encouragement for us, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our circumstances, look for what God is doing. As Ryan just shared, God, what are you doing here? What is it you want to accomplish? What is it you are accomplishing? Paul is there. Paul realized, and I kind of closed with these thoughts three weeks ago, one of the things that Paul had discovered in his life after his conversion was that God died for him. Yes, that was true. But he died that, that God might live in him and through him. He discovered this secret, if you would, that God intends for all of us, all humanity, really, to be indwelt by God. Think about that. One of the reasons, one of the important reasons that God created man was communion and intimacy. Sin separated us from that intimacy. And he sent Jesus to come and die on a cross so that intimacy could be restored and the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. God indwelling mankind. As Christians, we hear that so often. Think about that sometime. Meditate on that thought, that thought alone. God lives in you. The creator of the universe, creator of all that exists, lives in you. That ought to help your self-esteem when you know that God lives in you and what it costs for him to live in you, his son. One of the key verses that was in chapter 1 was, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mentioned that three weeks ago because so often I have and many of us have and you'll hear people say things like, I am so wore out. I am so sick and tired of the battle. I, I, I just wish Jesus would come back and take me home. That, that concept of Christian escapism. It's so bad here, let's just get out of here. And they use that scripture. And they think of that scripture in that way. And that's not how Paul meant it or said it at all. He's, he's sitting there and it's like weighing two things and they're both awesome. To live is Christ. To watch Christ do these amazing things. To watch how Christ is using him in jail. To watch what Christ does. It's like saying, every day I wake up, it's exciting. I can hardly wait for tomorrow to see what God's going to do next. To live is Christ. This is so amazing. This is so awesome. And then over here it's, but to die is better. It's to die is gain. To go into heaven and be in the presence of God for eternity, worshiping Him. 
So it has nothing to do with Christian escapism or being sick and tired of... Paul, Paul got the tar whip. None of us have suffered like Paul has suffered. And he's saying, man, I can hardly wait for tomorrow. And he tells us that, you know what? We have been given a gift called suffering. Christ says, I'm going to give you. Not only, not only am I giving you salvation that you might be saved, but you're also going to have the great privilege of suffering for me. Boy, does my mind need a great big mind shift to embrace that thought. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to suffer for you. Now, <clears throat> the blessing in suffering isn't really there when it's our own foolishness, our own sin. But we are going to suffer for Christ if we live for Christ. So the title of my message this morning is actually the heading in my Bible over chapter 2. It says, Be Like Christ. There's a command for you. Be Like Christ. So I'm going to just read four verses at the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to go into chapter 2, and... um, Well, we'll just see how it goes. Verse 27 of chapter 1 says, Paul's writing to them, and he's coming into this chapter, which wasn't a chapter in his letter at all, but for us it's a chapter break. It says, Only conduct yourselves, speaking to the church in Philippi, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Boy, is that a message for the church today. Live your life in a, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Is your lifestyle, the way you live day to day, the words you speak, the things you do, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's his exhortation. God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. He will lead us, guide us, direct us, teach us, encourage us. He'll do all that it takes if we listen and obey to live a life worthy of the gospel. And then he says, so whether I come and see you or I remain absent, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Live in such a way that as as your spiritual father, every time I hear about you, I am blessed. I'm blessed. Make me proud in Christ, the way you're living and the way people talk about you. So when people talk about you, when they talk about Mike or, or Monty or, or Alan or Tammy, what they say, well, I'm, I'm so proud of them. Everything they do is pointing to Christ. And that's what Paul's request was and his hope was, prayer was for these people. And that it really, it's a command for us. And then it says, in no way be alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation to you, and that too, from God. In other words, he knows there's, there's conflict from the outside the church. But he's telling them, don't be alarmed. Don't worry about it. Just trust me. Just keep your eyes on me. It's a sign. They're not saved. It's for their destruction. But it's a sign to you and for your salvation, which is a gift from God. So he's cautioning them about the external conflict that will come against them, just as it's come against him. And then he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sakes. Okay, so you might want to write this verse down. It's verse 29 of chapter 1. I like to write down the verses I don't like. (laughs) Because I have to convince myself it's true sometimes. For it has been 
granted for Christ's sake. Okay, it's a gift for Christ's sake. That's cool. Not only to believe in Him. Amen, I like it so far. But also to suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you for Christ's sake. Here is a blessing for you for Christ's sake. You get to suffer for Him. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear me to be in. Boy, when we start getting this whole thing in our mind and in our heart, when our focus is so on God, so on Christ, so on His love for us, when we understand and know really, really, really deep in our hearts that I am a child of God, I am His son, I am His daughter, He loves me immeasurably, unconditionally. He loves me that much. All of a sudden, these things of the world really do fade away. They don't disappear. We still have to live through them. We still have to walk through them. But we know we're never alone. And we're confident that His promise is true. When we come out the other side, we will be better for it. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. So He's telling them, this is what you need to do to deal with this external conflict. But now in chapter 2, He shifts it to talk about some internal things in the church. How do we deal internally with issues that pop up? In particular, in the church of Philippi, there was evidently a little bit of disunity, a little bit of strife going on. And most, many, not most necessarily, many churches today are continually battling these little things in the church, little, little unity issues, strife issues, jealousies, petty things that come out of our own self-pride, our own nature. And Paul's saying, you know what, in the church it shouldn't be this way. So I'm going to tell you how to deal with these internal issues in the church. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm going to be reading it from the NIV, and some of the words I'll use are actually coming out of my New American Standard translation, but I think on the screen you'll see NIV. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider the other better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He kind of starts out <clears throat> with some rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question, you know, is a question you simply state it as a question, but it's to make a point. I'm not looking to solicit an answer. You know, uh, is water wet? Do pigs fly? Is a rock hard? They're rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. And this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's asking the obvious things in a rhetorical way, saying, obviously we all get this. We have all experienced this encouragement in Christ. He starts out, and some of the translations is even more clear, if there is, if there is, if there is. And he goes through this list. And, but he's really, his point is this. If you've received any of these things, which... He's saying rhetorically, you have. Then 
you should be responding and you're responsible to do what is described. So he says, have you received any consolation or encouragement in Christ from being united with Christ? Well, that's, again, I'm not going to go into great deal on these because they're pretty obvious. Have I ever been encouraged being in Christ? Who hasn't? If we haven't been, we're probably not in Christ. And this is Paul's point. He says, have you ever been comforted with his love? Have you ever been comforted by the love of Christ? You know, the word comfort <clears throat> in our mindset was always kind of this soothing, it's okay type of thing. In the Greek, the word had much stronger meaning than that. It had this idea of strengthening, helping to make something strong even as it's soothing it. The comfort of the love of Christ. Knowing how much Christ loves you strengthens you. It gives you an ability to stand strong when, when adversity comes our way. Has anybody, if you've ever been comforted with that kind of love, Paul is saying, and have you ever experienced the fellowship with the Holy Spirit? And if you don't read that carefully, and I admit I've missed it a few times, fellowship of the Spirit, I always thought of me fellowshipping with you by the Spirit of God. And that's cool. It's fun, right? It's enjoyable. That's not what it says. It says fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Have we ever experienced koinonia, that fellowship, that mutual sharing of commonality with the Holy Spirit? Think about that. <clears throat> if you can picture, here's my spirit. Here's the Holy Spirit. And when I get saved, somehow mysteriously, they become intertwined. All that the Holy Spirit is and has to offer is in me as a believer. And my spirit has total access to all of that. Except that it's got to work its way through my soulish nature and my flesh. But he says, boy, if you've ever experienced that fellowship, that koinonia with the Holy Spirit. So he asked those rhetorical questions saying, you all have, therefore, you have a responsibility. All of these things are gifts to us as Christians from God, but they're not gifts to hang on to selfishly. They're gifts that should go from us, through us, these gifts to other people. We should be comforting them, encouraging them, strengthening them, um, fellowshipping with them, showing, uh, my translation said, affection and mercy. I believe the NIV was tenderness and compassion. The tenderness of God. You know, the Holy Spirit is such a gentleman. He's so tender. He's not going to beat you up. You may not always like what he's whispering, but he's going to do it gently and tenderly. And he's saying, this is how we as Christians need to be treating one another. Paul's focusing on the church. And he's focusing on these things that will help maintain unity in the body of Christ. And he says, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. This is how we remain in unity. How do we achieve and practice unity? I love Paul because he gets so practical. He says all those flowery words and those rhetorical questions and tells us it's our responsibility to do it, and now he gets even more practical. 
He says, don't do anything through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is very divisive. I don't care what relationships it is. Selfish ambition manifests in a marriage, in a church or an organization. It ultimately becomes very divisive. It's when we're doing things out of totally wrong motives. Our motives are more a a self-promotion or a self-achievement instead of just doing things out of love for one another. You ever experience that? Someone does something nice for you, but you know they didn't mean it. They say something nice to you, but you know that's not what they're really thinking. That's kind of what it's like. It's a nice act or nice words, but it's not really what they mean. They're doing it for some selfish reason, to look good, to maybe make a good impression on somebody, instead of just the fact that, you know what? They really love me. They really care about me. He's saying, don't do anything out of that kind of selfish ambition. He says, don't do anything through conceit, this vainglory, having this excessively favorable opinion of yourself. I can do all things through because of who I am. Instead of through Christ who gives me strength. Knowing who we are in Christ. And then he goes on and says, do everything with lowliness of mind, humility. You know, the Greek culture considered this attribute a fault, not a good thing. To be humble. Boy, that reminds me of our culture today. In our culture today, this idea of humility is almost gone. It's about being all that you can be. Be strong, be this, be that, excel. All of it for your own glory. Competence, self-confidence. You know, Christians should be the most confident people on the planet because we know who we are in Christ. We don't have to be something to impress anybody. We just need to know who we are in Christ. I am a child of God created in His image. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What else is there? Our confidence, knowing who we are in Christ. Confidence is not a bad thing. It's just where we place it. And Paul is saying, this self-confidence thing, this self-conceit will bring nothing but division. Do it all with lowliness of mind. Charles Spurgeon, I I, I want to read a quote of his. I, I love the quote. Men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. Quarreling stops when personal ambitions come to an end. Isn't that true? I have another quote, and I can't remember where I stole it from. So I want to give credit to the unknown author. It says this, If I consider you above me, and you consider me above you, we have a community, a church, where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down upon. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? If you consider me above you and I consider you above me, we become this church, this community where everybody is looked up to and nobody is looked down upon. That is unity. And it's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. And then the last thing he says in those verses Don't look out only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Notice he didn't say, don't pay any attention to your own interests. He didn't say that. He says, don't only look out for your own interests, 
We have interests we need to look out for. As Ryan encouraged us, get in the Word. It's good for you. It builds you up. It strengthens you. It renews your mind. Look out for your own interests. But don't look out for just your own interests, he says. Look for the interests of others. When selfish ambition, this conceit, all these high opinions of ourselves disappear, we really will care about other people way more. And boy, it's that powerful unity when we care for one another like that. And then he gives us an example to live up to. So he's given them all this information, and you might be saying, wow, I wonder what that really looks like. He says, I'll give you an example. And he picks a good one. Jesus. I'm going to read verses one through, or 5 through 11. And you're probably going to wonder why I'm going to use so many Greek words. But we need to get a hold of this because there's a doctrinal truth in here too that we need to never lose sight of. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. So first he tells them what he wants them to do before he even tells them what that means. I mean, you can almost see if Peter would have been there, he'd have jumped up right about then and said, what are you talking about? But Paul says, this is the deal. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul first says, here's what, the, here's what I want you to do. To have this kind of unity, you need to put on the mind of Christ. Notice, put on the mind of Christ. It's an act of our will. It's a choice. We need to consciously be aware that we are putting on the mind of Christ and it can seem a little confusing if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. It says, we have the mind of Christ. Once we are born-again believers, we have the mind of Christ. But we have to consciously, this goes back, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I have the mind of Christ. But I need to put it on. I need to be consciously aware of what is the mind of Christ. Holy Spirit, show me, reveal to me. How do I act? How do I respond now? The mind of Christ. And you must live it out. That's what he's saying. So many Christians, me included, we're great to talk about being a Christian. We're quick to criticize the world for what they do. And I come to mind that verse that says, get the beam out of your own eye before you start trying to get the sliver out of someone else's eye. We need to, to understand we have to walk it out. You know, Jesus in the New Testament, it's about love. Loving one another. It's still about doing right. There's still the justice of God. I'm not trying to, to make it a, just this sweet-sounding, lovey-dovey thing, but it is about love. The truth with love, walking in love. Jesus 
is love. God is love. It's part of his being. It's character. He lives in me. Therefore, we should walk in love. We're going to get lots of opportunities in our culture today, what's going on in the world. Darren had a great sermon last week about that. But if we missed the last part of his sermon when he said, we need to love people instead of criticize people. I read a great article and said, this gay marriage thing isn't the problem in the church today. It's the way Christians in the church are in adulterous affairs, getting divorced, in pornography, and all of those things. There's the problem. Get the beam out of your eye before you start worrying after the sliver in somebody else's. And when you do go after the sliver, how do you do it in love? Relationship. The church should be the most loving, especially in the church, but also to the world. We need to love our enemies. Love them so we get a chance to share the truth with love. And this is where Paul is talking about living out the mind of Christ. And he goes on and says, and these are, I'm going to use a few Greek words because there are groups of people and there are very excellent teachers and preachers, pastors out there that do not believe that Jesus was God and man when he was on the earth. They believe when he set aside or emptied himself, he set aside all deity and became all man. Um, it's, I just, it's not true. I don't see it as true. And I want, that's why I want to use some of these Greek words so you can see, because this very scripture, section of scripture, that clearly tells us Paul is saying he's all God and all man are the same sets of scriptures they will use to say he emptied himself. So we're going to look at this. Notice the word being in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The word being in the Greek is huparko. And you're going to be seeing some words up there. And I just put them there because I butcher the pronunciation. And you can check me out and see what they really mean. Because sometimes you can play with a, Greek, a word in the Greek because it has so many different meanings, you can make it fit anywhere you want. That's what I want to make sure we're not doing. Huparko. This word in the Greek means it is the very essence of who a person is. It describes what a man is and that cannot be changed. That part of a man which no matter what the circumstances are, it remains the same. So what is Paul is saying to his Greek audience, this Greek-speaking audience in the church in Philippi, he is saying to them, who being, who is the essence of God, who, he, who, he, who God always has been and who he always will be and who Jesus was before he came in the form of a man. He was the essence of God and he still is. The essence of God never changed. He was still deity. He was still God. And he said he thought it wasn't robbery to hang on. And it says, um, in the form of God, who being in the form of God, this phrase, in the form of God, there's, there's two different words in the Greek that can be translated form. And they have two very distinct meanings. The first one, as you see up there, is marfe. This word is not to the Greek mind. When we hear the word form, if you read that, form, we write everything, think of, of a shape or what my senses can pick up, what I see. That meaning didn't have anything to do in the Greek mind. It didn't, it didn't register. 
in the form there did not mean that. It's meaning there was a mode or essence. Who being in the essence of God. Who being in the essence of God. It's the essential nature of God without implying anything about physical shape or form. So Paul is saying to his Greek audience, who being, who parko, in this form, this essence of God, he did not think it robbery. The second Greek word that can be translated form is schema. And this word means the physical form that you can see. So for example, we could say Jesus in the form morpha or morphe of God came in the form schema of man. He didn't set his deity aside. He added something to his deity. Humanity, humanness. Make sense? Sort of? I hope. So he took upon himself Marfe of a servant. Now think about that for a second. If we think of form only as shape, etc., what does form of a servant look like? Can you describe that to me? Well, you might start driving, you know, how they dress or something. That's, it doesn't work. What is the form of a servant? It's an attitude. It's an essence. He took on himself the marfe of a servant. He took on the essence of a servant. Which is that inner attitude. And then he himself took on the schema, the the form of a man. Now you might be wondering, why are you messing around with all this stuff? I want us to understand, without a doubt, when Jesus walked the earth in the incarnation, Jesus, the man that we see, he was God and man. Both. But he did, set, he, did, he did empty himself of something. So what did he empty himself of if it wasn't his deity? Before I get to that, I want to go back to that word robbery. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God. The Greek word there is a harpagmos. He did not think it harpagmos. And that word means simply to cling to or to seize. He didn't have to cling to or seize being equal with God. You know why? He was God. He was God. He didn't have to, to hang on to it, to seize it, to grasp it, to try to become equal with God. He was God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was God. And he did not have to. We sometimes look at that and Think of, think of that whole thing, robbery, to cling to. We get it all confused. And that's why it's important. Sometimes you have to study a little deeper. And that's my goal today. And know I'm probably losing about half at the end. He made himself of no reputation, or in some translations it says he emptied himself. So how do I put that together with he remained deity, God, and yet he became man. He, his deity's here. He became man. He added to it. But then it clearly says he emptied himself of something. What did he empty himself of? He set, a son, set, set aside some of his rights and privileges as God. 
willingly, voluntarily set aside some of his rights and privileges. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, not of his deity, but of some of his rights and privileges. Now, this isn't a perfect uh, picture for you, but I think it helps us sort of get the picture. And you maybe have heard fairy tales or stories about this. If you were the king, and you were the king of a country, there was no one above you, no one you had to listen to. You were the king. You had the throne, you had the scepter, you had the crown, and you could give orders to anybody about anything you wanted to. But you lost connection. The people couldn't connect with you. All they could see was your, your, your trappings of being king, and they really didn't know you. So you set aside voluntarily all of your trappings. You, you left the throne, you left your scepter, you left your crown, you left your royal robes, and you dressed as a common merchant so that you could go out in the community of your people and they could get to know you and know who you were. They could, they could see your heart without seeing all the trimmings. Is he still king? Of course he is. That's who he is. That's his essence. It couldn't be changed. He's the king. But he willingly set aside some of his rights and some of his privileges so that he could connect with the commoners and more importantly, the commoners could connect with him. Jesus didn't have to come to earth so God the Father could know us. He already knows us. But Jesus came to earth that we might know the Father. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. It was such an act of love, him coming to earth to reveal the Father to us, even as he died on the cross for us. So what did Jesus empty himself of? What did he do? He took on the form of a bondservant. You know, can you imagine how humbling it was to go from being God the Son in heaven with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, to become man? What a downer. As if that wasn't far enough, you even went lower and you became a bond servant. He didn't humble himself just to become man. He humbled himself to become a servant of all. He emptied himself of that royal right to be God, to become a bond servant. It says, taking the form. That word in the Greek is lambano. And it's a neat word in the fact that it simply means to take. To take. He took and added something. He took. He emptied himself. It's not exchanged. It just means to take. He didn't exchange his deity for, to be a man. He took man, humanness, and added it to his deity, even though he had set aside some of his rights and privileges he emptied himself to come in the likeness of man schema the form of a man which limited him from his original form whatever that really looked like and he emptied himself and became obedient he emptied himself and became obedient who do you think god the son god the father god the holy spirit had to obey no one he gave up that right to become obedient. And it says he even learned obedience. You know how he learned obedience, the Bible says? By suffering. By suffering. 
He emptied himself of those royal privileges to become obedient to the Father, and he emptied himself to become obedient, learn obedience through suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, Through, Though he was the Son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's what Jesus emptied himself of, not his deity. So what's the point of all this? All those Greek words that you're never going to remember again? When you think about what Jesus did and what Paul is trying to reinforce to his beloved church in Philippi that they would remain in unity, it must be really important and it must be really, really powerful to keep unity in the body. And boy, when you need to guard unity in the body of Christ at all costs. Well, one of the things I think the reasons that it's so important is that think about what must sin have been in the sight of God the Father that it required all this of Jesus to make atonement for our sins. Just think how horrible, how wretched, how ugly sin must be in God's eyes. That Jesus emptied himself of all these rights and privileges to become man and God. And when you focus on that, think about is there a limit to what God will do to show his love and saving grace to man? You know, if you're sitting in here and and wondering what's all this stuff about that I'm talking about, the most important thing you need to understand is this last thing. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross, shed his blood to be buried and then raised again so that you and I can be forgiven of our sin, so that you and I can have a relationship with God and spend eternity with him instead of eternity in hell. There are only two destinations. The saved go to heaven. The unsaved go to hell. And the message here is, because of his love, he offers that to every single one of us. Have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Just think what Jesus did, that you might be saved, that I could be saved. Close with one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, The lower Jesus stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him up in adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops, and when he reaches our level as man and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. This is what God did for us through his son Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you could take all this that I spoke and make sense of it in each one of our minds. And Lord, if there's anything that's just confusing and not accurate, that it would just fall to the ground harmless. But Lord, I thank you and praise you for the truth that Paul is sharing with the church in Philippi, the depth of your love, the lengths that he went to, what he set aside to to take on the form of a man. 
and what he went through to atone for our sins. Father, that we would understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ. What it takes to remain in unity, to fulfill the purposes that God intends for us as a church and as individuals. Lord, I pray that you would give us greater understanding by your Spirit. That we would truly begin to understand and and by grace walk out what it means to have the mind of Christ every day in our work, in our homes. Father, we pray that in all these things you would receive all the glory and all the honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.